0: Well, hey, Forefront, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. If you're tuning in online, welcome. It's great to have you with us this morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's grab those and open up to the book of James. Uh, James is almost all the way to the end of the New Testament, so open up your Bible in half, open it up in half again, and then open it up another half, and then you'll probably be around the book of James, right on the heels of the book of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews. But we're kicking off this series called Get Real. Ask yourself, what does it feel like to be real? What does it feel like to have something that is real? I, mean, I think we all would agree we want real things in our life, right? Like we all want real things. We want real relationships. We want to feel like we're making a real difference. We want to feel like we're in a job where we can be real with our boss and our coworkers, be in a place where we can have real friendships, but, but I don't know about you guys, but it seems like sometimes while, while we want real, we settle for real-ish. Anybody ever been there? You settle for real-ish? Yeah, I think maybe the, one of the best ways to think about real-ish is food. You know, I talk a lot about food. I, I, I like food. And, and so I think it's a really good way to think about what it is like to settle for real-ish. Let's say you've got some family coming over, or it's been a really busy weekend, and you want to celebrate. And so you're going to get the grill out. You're going to have a nice steak dinner right? You want to have it all laid out. But then you decide, eh, that's too much work. I think I'm just going to grab some fast food. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever done that, right? It's not as good. It's real-ish. Or or maybe you say, you know what, this morning, I'm going to wake up Saturday morning and I'm going to make an omelet. I'm going to high protein. I'm going to have veggies. I'm going to start the weekend off right. But then you stay up a little too late watching shows the night before. You get up up a little too late, and now you're rushed. And so instead of making that delicious omelet, what do you do? You go and grab the hard-boiled eggs out of the fridge. Not the same, real-ish. Well, how about you sandwich eaters? You said, I'm going to make a nice ham sandwich. I'm going to get the real mayo, right? But then you settle when you go to the store and save a buck and buy this nasty stuff. I mean, I just got to say, is anybody here like Miracle Whip? You guys are just sick. You guys just, you guys got something going on. We need to talk about later. <laughs> we want real, but we settle for real-ish, right? And why do we do this? I don't know. We do this in life for a lot of reasons. Maybe because it's convenient. It's easy. It's simple. We're in a hurry. Whatever it could be, there's reasons that we settle for real-ish, but it doesn't just happen jokingly with food. It happens in real life. I mean, how many people do you know? Maybe it was you. Maybe you're here now, have stayed in a job that you hate because you know it's going to be too much work to go apply and interview and change careers. So you settle for real-ish rather than real. How many people do you know that stayed in a relationship or, or let's say, started a relationship It's a friendship with a bad friend. You started dating somebody you shouldn't date because you wanted that thing to be real, but you settled for real ish. So I think we do it in life all the time, and there's a lot of reasons for it. But let me ask you the question as we think about real versus real ish, do we do this in our faith? When it comes to your faith in Jesus, your relationship with God, is it real or is it real ish? This morning, we're kicking off this new series in the book of James, talking about getting real. And, and if you know the book of James, you know it's a powerful book. James has a way of stepping on our toes. James is gritty. James gets in the mess. And James tells us over and over, over again for five chapters, get real with your faith. That if you want to live the life God's created you to live, you need to actually get real with him and get real with your faith. So I guess the question is, what does real faith look like? Like, we want to have a real faith, but what is, it, what is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Or does it look like anything at all? You know, if you've been a Christian for some time, I think there is this uh, kind of this idea that we, we, we kind of marry the idea of faith with belief. And so we say that, you know, we, our faith is based on believing a set of values, a set of truths, right? We believe the Bible, but we believe the gospel, what Jesus tells us. And, and so we, we see all over the Bible verses like Ephesians 2.8 where we're saved by grace through faith, not works. But then yet there's this whole other side of the, of the New Testament where we see this idea of, of doing things. And so I, we're left with the question, what does real faith actually look like? What does it feel like? How can you see it? One day in the book of Mark, we see that Jesus is teaching, he's in a, and he's in a home, and he's teaching, sharing the gospel, and four men carry in a man who was paralyzed, but there was no room in the house, and so they climbed up on the roof, dug a hole through the roof, which I'm not sure how the homeowner felt about that, but they dug a hole in the roof and lowered the man down, and in that moment, Jesus looks at them, and, and he says to them, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus says, and faith looks something like that. There's another scene where Jesus is at a rich man's house. He's with Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector, and they're having dinner. And Zacchaeus says to Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to give half of my money away. And anybody that I stole from, that I charged more in taxes than I should have, I'm going to make it right. And Jesus looks at Zacchaeus, and he says, Today, salvation has come to this house. So Jesus says, faith also looks like that. There's another Uh, example where uh, a a Gentile Roman army leader comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, one of my soldiers is sick. He's he's dying. I need you to save him. And Jesus says, take me to him. And he says, no, no, Jesus, I'm a man who has a lot of people under my rank, just like you. You say the words and he will be healed. And Jesus looks at this Roman soldier, this Roman leader, and he says this. He says, in all of Israel, I have not seen a greater faith. According to Jesus, faith looks something like that, too. So back to the question, what is real faith? What does real faith look like? Is faith a belief or is faith an external action? Well, according to James, they're connected. According to James, that real faith is, yes, a set of beliefs, but it works its way out in action. James will go on to say that a real faith works. So in, in the book of James, James is going to stir up in us. He's going to challenge us and to say, is your, is your faith a said faith or is your faith a real faith? Is your faith a faith that works? James will look at verses like James 1:22, and he'll say, don't just hear the word, but do the word. James will say in chapter two, he said, Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And so there's this connection between what you do and what you believe. And so, one of the questions I think it's, it's important for us to ask is, is James right? You know, James must be from Missouri, right? He's from the show me state. Is he right? And so, if you ask yourself, if somebody looked at your life, what would they see? If somebody looked at your faith, what would they say? Would they hear you talk about your faith, or would they actually see your faith in action? And so James is going to write to encourage us, to challenge us, to step on our toes a little bit, to, to press into us and tell us, let's get real with our faith. And he starts off the book, he just jumps right in, and he starts off by talking about the trials and the difficulties we face in life. Look with me, if you have your Bibles, James chapter 1, uh, being verses 1 through 4. This morning. Notice what James says. James says this James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, tribes in the dispersion greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Forefront, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this opportunity today to come together on this beautiful day to open your word and uh, see that James is calling us into the pursuit of something real and to the pushing of the the side of something that's real-ish. Father, I pray this morning that you open our our, our hearts to to really uh, take in what James has to say and let it challenge us. Sometimes we, we don't like when it steps on our toes and it makes us uncomfortable, but I think that in those moments, Lord, you reveal so much to us. So I pray this morning, let James do its work in our heart. Father, we, we pray for just uh, the, the, the world around us, Lord. We pray for the families that have been walking through challenging seasons here at Forefront and in our extended family, Lord. And I just uh, I ask, Lord, help us to just to our hearts to be aware of the needs around us, for us to see uh, what you see, Lord, to be your people in this place that you've called us to be. Uh, so, Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I, I pray uh, that during today, stir us up. Point our hearts and our, and our eyes to you, stir up our affections for Jesus. And that today we leave looking more like Jesus than when we came. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Back in 2013, you guys may remember the story. There was a cruise ship called the Triumph, Carnival Triumph. And it, it, it embarked and was going through the Gulf of Mexico and it caught fire. The front of the cruise ship caught fire and it caused an electrical outage. And so for five days, the Carnival Triumph floated in the Gulf of Mexico with no power. Now, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you know that typically when there's no power, that means that there's no running water. So you guys can maybe imagine being on a cruise ship for five days with 4,200 people and only a few working toilets. It was probably one of the nastiest situations you could ever imagine. The toilets would, would, would work for a little bit and then they would stop and um there there's just really nasty stories about how the boat would move sitting dead in the water and there would be this sound of sloshing back and forth. It just yeah it's not good. And and so finally they tow the the, the ship into New Orleans to a, a port of New Orleans and they bring in a hundred motor coaches to get these 4,200 people off this ship, back to hotels and to, and to the airport. But one of the motor, ho- motor coaches broke down on the way to the airport. So just imagine you're one of those people, right? So they interviewed one of the guys, and they said, tell us what your experience was. And here's this quote. It was so good. He said, sometimes life gives you lemons, and you just have to eat lemons. Right? <laughs> this is the way it is. Now, what a terrible experience that would have been, and how that would have really maybe wrecked your view of vacation. But isn't it a microcosm of life in many ways? I mean, isn't life one of those things that you go into uh, seasons of life with high expectations like vacation, but then things happen and you feel like you're just stuck? Like, I'm just stuck on the ship and I can't get off right now. I feel like in life, that's what trials does to us. In life, we get in these difficult circumstances. We feel like we're just moving from one trial to another trial, up and down, mountaintops and in a valley, back and forth. And, and, and it can be big trials and little trials. It can be a flat tire on the way to work or sitting on I-25 traffic trying to get downtown. God help us, right? It can be money trouble, challenges at home. But I think there's those trials in life that really have a, a, a negative impact on us, that derail us, that lead us asking those questions like, why? You know, there's those trials in life where we run into really difficult things and we say, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? God, why is this happening in my life? Why me? We see trials like when somebody gets let go from a job for doing everything right, or a trial when a a marriage fails, or a loved one gets sick with cancer, or global pandemics that change the landscape of millions of families across the world We say, God, why did this happen? And those trials have a way of really pulling us down and away from God. And I think we want to look to James and say, James, tell us why. Tell us why this happens. But what James really is going to do is he's going to open up our eyes to seeing trials through the right lens. And so this is what he's doing here in James. You know, James is a really interesting author, you know, the Bible talks about a couple of James in prominent roles. We see the author of this book, James, is Jesus' half-brother. But what's interesting about Jesus' half-brother, James, is that for the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry, James and his family didn't believe in Jesus. Now, how many of you guys have siblings at home, right, or have, have, have um, grew up with brothers and sisters? Part of growing up with brothers and sisters is just not believing their God, Right? Like, you see your brother and sister, and if they claim to be God, you're going to go, yeah, right. Like, you're a nice guy, but that's about it, right? And so we see Jesus' family. There's something different about Jesus. He's a really nice kid. He didn't tell the dirty jokes, he didn't laugh at the dirty jokes, he didn't throw spit wads in his sister's hair. But he's not God, he's just a really nice guy. There's an interesting scene where Jesus is, is uh, he's out in his ministry, he's healing, he, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and he goes home, and at home, a crowd gathers around the house, and the crowd is like knocking on the door, saying, Jesus, come out, talk to us, heal us, and Jesus' family sees this going on, and, and so they go to Jesus' house, and they try to get him out of there because they think he's lost his mind. They want to have him institutionalized because he thought he was God. But yet, this same James, who didn't believe that Jesus was anything other than his big brother, all of a sudden goes from trying to have his brother institutionalized to writing this letter. What happened? How do you go from thinking your brother is just your brother to thinking your brother is God? Well, here's how it happens. Resurrection from the dead. Right? Lose your life, stay buried for three days, and rise from the grave. And show up and eat a fish sandwich with your family, that'll do it. That'll typically do it. And so all of a sudden, James becomes this guy that went from doubter to believer to leader. We come to find out that James, uh, Jesus' half-brother, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That he is prominent, has a prominent role. He, he, his nickname is James the Just, which tells you about his character His other nickname was Camel Knees. Now, I'm not sure that it's a great-sounding nickname, but it talked about the fact that James was always on his knees praying, that he had wrinkles and scars because he spent so much time on his knees. And you see his humility when you look here and see how James defines himself. He doesn't say, hey, I'm James, Jesus' brother. No, I'm James, a servant of God and Jesus Christ. And so here we have the brother of Jesus writing this letter to us, telling us to get real. And I think we should take it to heart because James knew a little bit about trials. And James knew a little bit about difficult situations. Notice back to verse 1. Notice what James says. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice who he's writing to. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So who's this dispersion? Well, a lot of scholars will will, um, look at the context of, of who James is writing to. And we see that James is writing to Jewish Christians that had been dispersed around the Roman Empire. But he's writing to us as well. You know, the, the majority of like, top notable scholars put the writing of James at about uh, mid-40s to early 50s. That's when this book came. So not 140 or 240 or 340, but A.D. 40. So Jesus died A.D. 30, A.D. 33-ish. So James is writing this letter within 10 years. Maybe a little over from when Jesus went to the cross. And so James is writing to a group of of first century early church Christians. This is the early church, the first church. And if you follow the narrative through the book of Acts, you see that that there was this great momentum that happened right after Jesus died. And you see that Peter preaches this amazing sermon in Acts 2 at Pentecost, and 3,000 people believe. And then by Acts 4, we see that there's about 5,000 people in the church. The church is thriving. It's doing really well. But then something happens. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was killed. And all of a sudden, it sent everything into a a, a frenzy. There was a guy named Saul. was standing there, and and Saul all of a sudden decides to start arresting Christians. And Christians flee. Saul, by the way, would later meet Jesus and become Paul. And so we see that Christians are now fearful of their life, and so they flee. They leave Jerusalem, they leave their homes, they leave their jobs, they leave their land, they leave their extended families that were non-believers, and they left. And so James picks up his pen in A.D. 45 or so and writes this letter and says, you guys are walking through terrible seasons of persecution and trials, but let me tell you, when you experience that trial, count it all joy. It's really baffling, it's really mind-blowing what James has to say. But here is what he's trying to tell us about trials and difficulties. He says this, that God wants to use our trials in our life to shape our faith into something real. See, James tells us to get real. And to realize that God wants to use those trials to help us get real, to help us have a real faith. You know, one of the things I love about God's Word is when you start talking about trials, is just how real God is. This how real God gets with us about trials. You know, it's not... Jesus doesn't give us this fantasy picture. It's not some H.G. Wells novel, right? Some utopian picture of what life is like. It's real. It's gritty. It's He meets us where we are. And, you know, the Bible says this is what life looks like living in a Genesis 3 world where people get sick and people lose their lives and people are discouraged and downtrodden and people's hearts are, are heavy, it's just a reality that, that comes with this. But, but what James says and what the Bible says over and over is that, yes, bad things are going to happen, but instead of losing your mind like the world does, instead see that God wants to use that trial in your life to do something special to strengthen you, to change you, to grow you, to shape you. Just think in your life for, for a moment. Think about the experiences you've had that you feel like you've grown the most. What, what are they? And just think, think to yourself. Are they the good situations? Are they the situations where everything was perfect? Are they the situations where everything worked out great? No. The situations in life that grow us the most are the hard ones, aren't they? They're the difficult lessons we learned because of the dumb stuff we said or the bad decisions we made. And we learn from those. But yet, for some reason, when it comes to faith, we tend to think that spiritual growth is different. We tend to think that spiritual growth is we believe in Jesus. Jesus sprinkles a little holy water and some pixie dust on us and off we go, right? And we don't want to believe that we actually mature through trials and the hard times in life. But this is, I think, what James is going to just get at over and over again and is going to draw us into today is that it's actually the trials that are going to grow us. And that's why James can say in verse 2 that we can count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trials. It seems backwards, it seems upside down, but what James knows is that when Jesus is king, when you believe in Jesus, when the gospel takes root at your heart, when you take believing the truths of the Bible and trust them and let them grow and believe them more and more and more, it begins to change you to where it changes your assumptions and it changes the realities that you experience in your life. Because life has a way, uh, or challenges in life, have a way of beating you up and pulling you down, making us bitter, throwing us off course and shaking our faith. But James wants us to see that our maturity and growth are determined in many ways by how we respond to trials. And so James is just trying to punch us in the mouth as soon as we open this book by saying, you have to change your perspective and see that Jesus gives you a bigger window to see the world through. When I was a kid, my dad used to take me to Royals games. And the Royals weren't any good. But we had George Brett, Frank White, and Bo Jackson. And so we would go in and we would sit at the very top because tickets were cheap. And we'd sit up there, and my dad would always bring binoculars. Anybody's dad ever bring binoculars to games? It was, like, the coolest thing as a kid, right? Because, you know, you could, like, just kind of zoom in on Bo Jackson, you know, standing out there, you know, just looking cool, standing out there in the outfield, you know, watching him break his bat over his knee. But I would find myself watching the game through these binoculars, right? You're watching the pitch, right? You know, it's just not the best way to watch a game. You miss everything. I think trials have a way of causing us to look at life like we're looking through binoculars. We're so zeroed in on the problem. We're so zeroed in on what's going on that we don't see the big picture. And this is what James is saying. Guys, get real. See that God wants to give you a big picture so you can see the world unfold around you. You can see what God's actually doing through that trial. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this. um, Trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we're made of. They do that. Trials, difficulties, hardships, they they do that. And and this is what James is saying because he said that when these trials hit, that that there's going to be a result. So we need to be paying attention. Notice what he says again here in verse 3. He says this, consider it joy for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your Bible might say perseverance or endurance. This is this idea that, that we're growing stronger. Because of the trial, that word testing, it, it gives us this picture of putting metal, gold, and silver through the heat, through the fire, and it removes the impurities. That God is, is allowing these things to come in our lives, these trials and these tribulations, to test us, to grow us, to strengthen us. And it removed the impurities from our lives. Back in 2014, uh, I was, uh, it was at college at Mizzou, and we were playing intramural football, and I tore my ACL. I I can still remember the sound, just the pop. I don't know if you guys have ever had that, but it's like in your head forever, right? Um, So I I remember I I go to the doctor, and they're like, yeah, this is really bad, really bad. You have a bucket handle tear on your meniscus. We need to get you in surgery like this week. So it was totally a God thing. My dad was going to have surgery on his rotator cuff. My dad gave me a spot. So I got, within four days, I was in. Until then, I was in a hip-to-ankle cast, restricted, So I I had the surgery, and for five weeks, I'm in a wheelchair or on crutches, and I start going to rehab. Anybody ever been through physical therapy, through rehab? I remember that first moment I went in, and my leg was straight, and they go, okay, we're going to see how much motion you have. Oh, wow, right? Like, turned white as a ghost. It was crazy. But over time, rehab and physical therapy began to, to do something. It began to change me. It began to stretch me. In rehab, in physical therapy, it's planned resistance. So every day I'm moving a little more. Every day the band I'm using on my leg to, to move is just a little bit stronger. Five weeks later, I'm walking. Four more weeks later, I'm running. Another, week later, another month later, I'm playing slow-pitch softball. Like, I'm in it. I'm telling you. There's something that, about rehab that strengthens you and that grows you. And this is what I think God does for us In trials, because trials teach us perseverance. Trials make us stronger. Trials provide that resistance that teaches us and grows us and helps us to become steadfast. And as we begin to value God's promises more and more and we begin to trust them more and more, God grows our faith more and more and God makes us persevere more and more. So God says, James says that God wants to use these trials to produce steadfastness. Here's what James is saying, that real faith, begins to see trials as an opportunity for real growth. That rather than looking at trials as this thing like, wow, why is this happening to me? What's going on? It's ruining my world. But to see that God actually has a plan for that trial. Because he's going to rehab your heart like I rehabbed my knee. So I think the challenge we have is we often turn inward we grab the binoculars. We look and say, why? We say, how do I get out of this situation? How do I fix my problem? How do I overcome this trial? And we miss what God is doing and what God is teaching us. If you're a parent in the room, I think you get this. I know I do with my kids. I realize how many times I jump in when my little one falls down and skins up her knee. You ever done that as a parent? Your kid falls down, and before they even have a chance to cry, you grab them up, and then what happens? <laughs> right? And then just tears, waterworks. What would have happened if I wouldn't have picked her up? She may not have just dusted herself off and got back on the swing. Like, as parents, I think we do this, right? We jump in. We try to protect our kids from experiencing the hard times. But there's something to be said about experiencing the pain to grow and get stronger. I was reading an article this week in Psychology Today by a man by the name of Dan Wiseman. And the article was talking about how hands-off parenting can lead to resilient children. And it talked about helicopter parents which I've got the habit of being sometimes. And it says that the problem with helicopter parenting is we we think we can protect our kids from the hard things in life, but what they need is to experience those difficult things in life so they can grow and they can have perseverance and they can learn how to navigate the tough challenges in their life. And so here's what Dan Reisman says. He says that that he's talking about our little ones, our kids. He says, those given time, space, and freedom, and freedom and autonomy to develop a deeply personal method of dealing with the challenges as as well as true competence. That that we need to learn to deal with the challenge so we can develop a competence to deal with future challenges. That we grow and we get stronger. And psychology and psychologists, social psychologists, and scientists are are, are pretty pretty strong in saying that as parents, we're, we're messing our kids up when we don't allow them to experience pain and suffering and trials now there's a limit of course like my kids know i'm there my kids trust that i'm there to help pick them up if it gets too crazy but there's something to be said about letting us experience the hard things in life and i wonder could god be doing that same thing with us We know he's there. We know he gives us the tools. We know he tells us to trust him. But God isn't just rescuing us from that trial or for that difficult situation. God wants to leave us in there because he knows that the testing will grow our faith and will make us stronger and will teach us actually to persevere. And this is what he says in verse 4. He says that, that the steadfastness, we need to let the steadfastness, we need to let the perseverance, we need to let the endurance have its full effect. Because when its effect is full, notice what happens. We become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That we become equipped. We have the capabilities to move through the trials of life and we get stronger each and every time. I like how Paul says it in Romans 5. He says this. He says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. See, to the world, what James says here is, counterintuitive, makes no sense. How can I have rejoice in my trials? Paul, how can I have hope in my trials? And, and, and so far through verse 4, Paul or J- James has kind of left that question hanging. And, and you might be wondering, well, okay, why? Like, why does it matter? Why does it matter that I persevere through trials? Why does it matter that I count it joy? Why does it matter that I care? Why can't I just self-wallow in my trial? Why do I need to get real? can I just experience my own little pity party for a little bit? Because it feels kind of good. And James is saying, you got to stop settling for the real-ish and get real. And he tells us why in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says this. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Do you see what James says? He says that there is a reward for perseverance. There is a reward for standing strong through that trial. And that reward is the crown of life. Now, If you've been at forefront for a while, you've, you've noticed a pattern. that We say all the time that God has created life to work in a certain way. That God wants us to live the abundant life, the full life, the satisfied life. But to do so, we have to do it his way, not our way. We want to do it our way. But God says there's a way that the world works best. And God allows trials to work in that way. And God says all throughout the the Bible, he he says over and over, that, that there's a way that the world works best, and that's by having a future focus. That's by looking at what God is doing in the future, looking forward, not just back. That our past can't define us. We're looking at the future. And that means whether you're in good times or bad, That means that whether you're in a time of success and failure, whether you have a lot of money in the bank or a little, a lot of money in the fridge or a little, we can navigate and make sense of these things by looking forward to what God is doing. So we can mentally assess all of our trials when we know that God always has a bigger and better reward for those who persevere through their trials. And so what James is trying to to, to tell us is that that there is actually a, a, a Blessing that comes from standing firm and growing and knowing what God is doing. That word blessed, you guys recognize that? Who does that sound like? Jesus, doesn't it? I wonder why. You know, we always take on our, our big bro language, don't we? Blessed. You think about the Sermon on the Mount, it's blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed are the, the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they want to inherit the, the kingdom. You know, this sounds really a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, where he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely falsely on my account. Rejoice, huh? And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. It's counterintuitive, but what Jesus is saying is this blessedness, this is shalom. This is completeness. This is that feeling in your heart, And in your soul, like, you're right where you need to be, a spiritual wholeness. And that's what James is all about, about finding spiritual wholeness. But we will never be spiritually whole until we get real and stop settling for real-ish. And I think this is what James is, is really getting at here. He's talking about the crown of life. And this kind of life is it's eternal life, and it's, it's living in the kingdom, and it's all the beautiful, glorious, amazing things that come from following Jesus. It's, the reward is greater than we can ever imagine. And James is saying we have to have that future focus, knowing that God is growing us into something, and this reward will be ours. So at the heart of what James is getting at is this, that God allows trials and difficulties in our life to test and reveal what we love most. That God is, that, that trial, I mean, isn't, that, isn't that really kind of what we run into? A lot of the trials and the, the consequences we experience in life, that are, are, some of them are bad decisions we made. Some of them are decisions that happen to us from the world. But, but aren't they at the heart really challenging what we love the most? Aren't trials and difficulties really revealing what is first in, in our heart? And so I think what God is trying to do is he's trying to rehab our hearts. Through trials and difficulties, he's trying to, to define or redefine the things that we love, the things that are, are first in our life, the priorities and the hierarchies of this love. If I told you that I love my house or my car or my mountain bike more than I do my wife and my kids, you would say that's wrong, right? That's Something messed up about that. There's dysfunction in that. And when we love this, when we, our, our, our loves are out of order, our lives are out of order. See, God uses our trials to reorder our loves. So whatever trial you're going through right now, whatever the the situation in your life that you're facing right now, ask yourself that question, God, what are you revealing to me? What does this trial show me that I love first, that I love the most? This is why we can have joy in trials, because it's revealing our hearts so we can reorder our loves. We can put God first. So God wants to rehab your heart, and he wants to rehab your soul so he can reorder your loves. And to be honest, church, I I don't know if there's a more relevant, important topic for us to talk about right now than reordering of loves. Because we've all been walking through a trial. This last 12 months plus, varying levels, but has been a trial for every single one of us. And in the midst of this global pandemic that we're in, God has been bringing you through this to ask you to look and see what loves have you got out of order. So what is God showing you right now through the trial you've been walking through, through the pandemic that we've been in? Because this trial has changed so much about our life. It's knocked us out of our routine. It's changed the way we do relationships. It's changed the way we do church. It's changed everything. And in the midst of that, God is revealing to us the order of our loves. Are our loves in the right order? Or are our loves dysfunctional? Are we loving the wrong thing? You know, I said at the very beginning that we have this habit of settling for real-ish rather than real. And what trials do for us is they, they, they have a habit of changing our perspective and changing our view, and we miss what God is doing. And so we, we totally get our, 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 our loves and our minds and, and all of these things out of order and it knocks us down and it causes us to settle. And for a year, we have settled for scrolling social media rather than hanging out with friends. For a year, we have settled with watch, binge-watching TV shows rather than getting out of the house and doing the things that we should do. For a year, we have stopped going to church as much as we should and we have stopped serving in the church. For a year, we have been knocked off of our routine, and it's caused a lot of us to settle. And maybe it's because it's convenient, or maybe it's because it was easy, or maybe it's because it was simple. But I think James is showing us here that all the good things in life are hard, that everything that's good in life takes work because the greatest thing in life took Jesus going to the cross for us and giving his life for us. And so we shouldn't expect good things just to come easy. And so James is telling us, guys, get real. Because we're at a crossroads right now in our lives where things have changed. Things are changing quickly. And we have to make the decision, am I going to stay settled? Am I going to stay choosing the easy route or the convenient route or the simple route? Or am I going to get off the fence and get real and get back in the game and choose joy in the midst of the hard times and the difficult times and let God reorder my loves to the trials he allows in my life. So James is telling us, Forefront, to get real. To not act like the world when trials and hard times come and lose our minds, but instead to lean in and let God rehab our hearts and rehab our souls so he can reorder our loves. I'm going to invite the band back on stage here's my challenge for us as a church. Here's my challenge for us as, as, as followers of Jesus. To let the difficult moments and the tension that comes from the trial we've been in, the tension that comes from the difficult situations we're walking through, refine us and remove the impurities. And when God shows us and reveals to us what we've put before him, let's just be honest with him. And prayerfully ask, God, help me put you first. Reorder my love so I can be the person you've created me to be. For let's pray together.